Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks so much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. Really excited about this conversation and appreciative to my three guests here for this discussion today. Three new city council members who chair very important committees here uh, related to some of the crises that New York City faces here as we are in January in going into February 2022, the first months of this new city council, new mayor Eric Adams, and a lot of other new members of city government. And of course, as we've been discussing here on the podcast, also a lot happening at the state level, of course. It is uh, state budget season, it is state legislative session. Governor Kathy Hochul has outlined her state of the state policy vision, her executive budget, and now the state legislature is holding budget hearings on her proposal. So there's a lot happening in New York politics and policy at the state and city levels. We've been trying to get to a lot of it here on the show uh, and have had some great guests at both the city and state levels. Recent uh, conversations include uh, really good ones with state senators Liz Kruger of Manhattan and Jessica Ramos of Queens. We've also spoken uh, recently had a really interesting conversation with Doreen Harris, who's the president and CEO of NYSERDA, which is a state authority that handles a lot of um, green energy planning and contracts and implementation of the state's very ambitious climate act and climate goals. That was uh, a really interesting substantive conversation I just had with her. Uh, and many others. I won't go into all the recent guests because we want to get to today's show, but you can find those conversations and more at Max Politics, wherever you get your podcasts, or we have all the episodes, of course, at the Gotham Gazette website. All right. And you can also, of course, find all our great reporting at the Gotham Gazette website. We've been covering a lot of the ins and outs of the early Adams administration and much more. So check that out there. All right, today on the show, I'm really happy to be joined, as I said, a rarity, but joined by three guests here, uh, and we're going to have a really interesting conversation, I'm sure. Three new city council members. City council member Linda Lee represents District 23 in Queens and is the new chair of the city council's committee on mental health, disabilities, and addiction. City Council Member Mercedes Narcisse represents District 46 in Brooklyn and is the new chair of the City Council's Hospitals Committee. And City Council Member Lynn Shulman represents District 29 in Queens and is the new chair of the City Council's Health Committee. So as you can gather from those committee chair assignments, which just came through earlier in January, I've asked uh, the three council members to join me here to talk about public health hospitals, mental health, uh, COVID recovery, and much more. Thank you all very much for being here and welcome to all three of you. Will you each just take a moment and introduce yourself and the neighborhoods you represent in your city council district? I'm Lynn Shulman. I'm the council member for District 29 in Queens, which takes in the neighborhoods of Forest Hills, Rigo Park, Kew Gardens, and a piece of Richmond Hill. Hi, my name is Mercedes Narcisse. I represent the 46th district, which cover Canarsie, Flatlands, Georgetown, Bergen Beach, Mill Basin, Mill Island, Marine Park, Garrison Beach, and Chipset Bay. Hi, my name is Linda Lee, representing District 23, which includes the neighborhoods of Glen Oaks, Bellrose, Little Neck, Douglaston, Oakland Gardens, Hollis, Hollis Hills, Hollis Woods, <laughs> uh, Queens Village, um, and I think I've covered most of them. All right. 
So you are all uh, not only chairing these very important committees, you're all uh, part of the first ever female majority in the New York City Council, now led by City Council Speaker Adrian Adams, who's also of Queens. All of you and the speaker are Democrats, as are most of your colleagues in, in the City Council. And so let's get into some of the issues that you're thinking about and ways that you're thinking about chairing these important committees as we are now basically on the verge of entering our third year with the COVID pandemic. Uh, vaccination rates across the city are relatively high, of course, but we also have uh, some neighborhoods and, and some demographic groups where the rates are still low. There's big questions about mandates, and there's a lot of questions about lessons we may or may not have learned from the pandemic. So um, you're each new to the city council, you're each newly appointed to chair these important and interdependent and overlapping committees. Uh, congratulations to all of you again, and thanks for, for joining me again. For each of you, um, the committee chair assignment, it makes some sense. Uh, this is These are not random assignments. Uh, they make some sense because of your background. If you could each take a minute and explain why the committee that you're chairing in the council with its powers around passing and considering legislation, uh, negotiating and examining the budget, uh, holding oversight hearings, why you are uh, well suited to the uh, committee that you're chairing. Uh, Councilmember Narcisse, why don't you start us on that? Uh, what makes you such a good fit here for the hospitals committee? Um, Simple as uh, to me is as a nurse um, with over 30 years of experience having worked in a hospital, both private and um, public, um, I certainly bring uh, uh, a unique perspective. I know what is truly needed in a hospital within the hospital system. I have worked emergency room, oncology, um, neurology, um, even home care to some extent. Um, that's what make uh, me my function um, suited for that. Um, I'm excited to bring the frontline points of view um, to address the needs of our healthcare system in our communities. That's the best I can tell you. Thank I, you. I yeah, no, work. that's great. That's that's. Uh, I think I think that makes a lot of sense to people. Uh, Councilmember Shulman, uh, the health committee. Uh, sure. Why, why um, did you wind up there? You know, it's it's interesting. All of us, I think, bring certain life experiences to these positions, which is really exciting. So I'm very I'm very glad to be working with uh, my other colleagues on this. I've dedicated my personal and professional life to healthcare advocacy, which came out of the HIV AIDS movement where I witnessed friends and neighbors die needlessly because of the indifference of those in power. And we've seen the same thing with COVID uh, where those most vulnerable had problems accessing testing, vaccines, and on the most basic level, information. And as we all know, the governor and the mayor had separate processes, separate websites, uh, all of that uh, you mentioned about uh, language, uh, there are different communities where um, there are pockets of um, the vaccine. And for example, uh, five to 12 year olds, there's a, there's, they're very, there's a very low number of them getting vaccinated now. And that's a big issue. Um, but also in some of these communities, I'll give you an example. Um, the previous mayor had sent materials in Yiddish to a Jewish community where they spoke Hebrew. 
or they spoke Russian. So we all have to be cognizant of that. The other is that, and I think uh, some people are aware of this, I had breast cancer during the campaign. So I bring that experience here. And that was a, that was a big issue for me. It was scary, but the, the, the major point of that was that it made me a better candidate. It made me a better council member. I actually interacted with people who didn't get their mammograms at the time at the height of COVID, 84 to 90% of women were not getting the regular mammograms. Uh, I happened to catch this on, a, um, on an annual mammogram and I'm cancer-free now, I'm happy to say. Uh, but there's, uh, there are women that I met who not only didn't ha have access to mammograms, but they were also, because of COVID, uh, their breast cancer surgeries in some cases was considered elective procedures. And so these are all kind of the life experiences that I'm bringing to, um, you know, to this committee assignment. And, you know, we, we're experiencing the worst public health crisis of our lifetimes. And I'm hoping to work and resolve a lot of those issues along with my colleagues here and my colleagues in the council. And we're, we're glad to hear that you're cancer-free uh, right now. We really yeah. hope it's, it stays that way. Um, Councilmember Lee, uh, you wound up chairing here the uh, Committee on Mental Health, Disabilities, and Addiction. Why was that a good fit for you? Sure. Um, so I am a social worker, and I've been in the nonprofit sector for the last 20 years. And most recently, I was the president and CEO of um, a citywide nonprofit organization called KCS Korean Community Services. And just, just by having that lived experience in my own immigrant community, um, I saw how mental health is never talked about. Um, I have very close family and friends that suffer from severe mental illness, but no one in my family talks about it. No one in my circle of friends talks about it. It's very hidden. You know, you're not supposed to bring shame to your family. Um, people don't, it's, it's very stigmatized. And we saw in our community that there were so many more deaths that were being attributed to suicide. And for me, I was like, okay, well, even if I had a client from my community that ne needed language and culturally sensitive services, where are they going to go? So um, it took me about four years, uh, which was a huge learning process in and of itself because the state has crazy regulations, some rightfully so, some not. But I, I, it took me four years, but uh, we're the first Korean nonprofit, the only one I believe still statewide that runs an Article 31 outpatient um, mental health clinic. And I, you know, there are some other larger agencies that do have bilingual social workers that speak the language and offer the services, but it's, it's, you know, the communities don't know about these organizations, but they go to their local senior centers and their local churches, and that's where they find out about information um, of where to receive services in the community. And it's, it's the language access piece is so crucial in all of this because, you know, a lot of the issues that we saw and the disparities we saw during the pandemic um, were that much more exasperated. Uh, it's issues that we knew were there in the community already, but I just feel like it was that much more um, exacerbated during the pandemic. And, you know, we, we saw clients one-on-one. -on -one. Thankfully, we were able to do, offer services, um, counseling services uh, virtually. Uh, but, you know, if there are, if you're having tech issues or if you don't know how to speak English, oftentimes it is hard to access these services. So um, for me, that was really one of the reasons why um, I was really excited to be able to chair this committee, because 
I, and, I, and I think it's important to mention also that there's a lot we can do within the city, but we also have to partner a lot with the state because they oftentimes um, are the ones that create the regulations that we have to follow as service providers. And so it's, it's a very complex issue, as I know some of my colleagues already know, because um, when you're trying to do casework and navigate the system and the healthcare system for your clients, um, it's, it's not always the most logical, easy thing to navigate. So I'm hoping to bring that to light as well. Thank you. Thank you all. Uh, Councilmember Narcisse, you, you said, um, you know, you have this uh, experience and this knowledge of what the city's hospitals need. Say a little bit more about that. What, what, and, and I want to come back to you after this, Councilmember Schulman, in terms of um, you've been outspoken about, about wanting to build out hospital capacity in the city, especially in Queens. Um, so I want to come to you on this as well. And this is part of the reason to bring you all together. These are overlapping issues and areas of focus. But Councilman Narcisse, when you say you've got, you know, this um, insights into into what the city's hospital needs, what's, what's on the top of that list? Um, the bottom line is to bring equity to our community. I bring equity, equity. It was my key words during all the period that I was campaigning. What I realized, um, we don't get the same services throughout our city. It is deplorable that in 2022, that your services depends on your economic status or the color of your skin. It should not be. The death rates that we see is almost 30% higher in the poorest um, New York City community, right? Um, than the neighborhood that's wealthier. Mm -hmm. How could that be, right? Black women are eight times more likely to die of pregnancy-related uh, um, issues than the white counterpart. How are we going to continue the city like this? Look for no further than the pandemic. Look at what happened. Yeah. Communities of color suffer so much because of pre-existing diseases that we've been talking about that could have been addressed in preventive care. We're not doing that. Um, it is, this is inconceivable to me. I assure you that we, like you see Lynn, you see Linda, we are, we have the experiences, we have the understanding, we've been through the process. I assure you that myself, I, Mercedes, along with my colleagues, Lynn, you heard the story, you heard what we've been through. We're fully prepared to confront these issues. And it's I am more than ready. And those issues need to be addressed, not tomorrow, but today by providing the needs, the like, for instance, we're talking about simple things, the doula we've been talking about. I can go in depth with all those different things that we can do, like maternal uh, 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 um, breath. When you're talking about maternal problem that we're talking about that can be prevented because of a one's culture, the lack of understanding, if they have somebody to advocate for them, that can be addressed. We're talking about right now, I'm, I'm thinking back when I was in nursing school, we're talking about staffing since I was in nursing school. And yet we're not doing anything to keep the staff, to give incentive, to recruit, how to keep your, all those things, those are the things that we need to explore as, um, as we go further in the hospital. And this is the opportunity that I got, I mean, I get right now to sink my teeth into, to looking for, because who can do, I've been the part not receiving the support system. Look at the PPE, simple, you think it's simple, but yet the staff could not even get that to survive. We lost a lot of lives because of that. 
Um, there's a lot we can do. I can go yeah. on and on. <laughs> Council Member Shulman, you, you have been advocating for increasing hospital capacity, noting how much hospital capacity has been lost over the years. Uh, there's some pushback to that, that um, you know, that, that this can be very costly and not utilized until, you know, sometimes there's, there's something like a pandemic, which can be a once a century, uh, issue and that it's much more, you know, some people say it's much more about having sort of flexibility plans in place or better using, you know, opening more community health centers and then be, be, being ready to transition them into acute needs or whatever it might be. Um, how are you thinking about the city's public hospital network? And this um, this call you've you've been making for quite some time to increase hospital capacity in the city. Well, just take a look. You you mentioned earlier that we're in the third year of the pandemic. The in January, uh, early January, the governor talked about the lack of hospital capacity throughout the state. Not just I was talking about in Queens, but throughout the state, and that she actually said that there were hospitals that were going to have to ban elective surgeries. Uh, and so what do those what do those people do? I actually, um, as a side note, I had met with the governor with um, actually with my colleague, uh, Council Member Lee and a few others uh, who were just who, women who were just coming into the council. And I mentioned to her about the fact that when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, that there were breast cancer victims who who had metastatic breast cancer. I mean, I had an, you know, I had a, a, I was, I was caught very early, but who were told that they couldn't get surgery because it was considered elective under whatever protocol the hospital was using at the time and that they were going to given, be given medication to keep the tumors at bay so that when they could have surgery, they'd be okay, but that's not okay. Uh, and so the governor in her executive order that she issued in January said, stated specifically that people who are diagnosed with cancer should not be considered elective surgery. And so that was important. But going back to what you said, the pushback, you know, if people aren't healthy, they're not going to go to work. They're not going to, they're, they're not going to be, and, and we already have a situation and an economy where people aren't going to work. People, and people, people have to be well to do that. And you need to have fun people to function. And that is that's a healthcare issue. So, you know, you're talking about being penny wise to be pound foolish to talk about, oh, it's expensive. Mm. It, a life, what's a life worth? You know, and so it, it is important. And, and, you know, I got pushed back recently from the business community. And I said, if people aren't healthy and they're not coming to work, so how are you how are you going to? exist in the economy? How are you, how's your business going to make money? So that's something that, that I think is very important. We have to look at hospital capacity, just like we look at the environment, you know, we do environmental assessments. One of the things that I do that I talked about during the campaign was to have a hospital capacity assessment mm -hmm. for zoning applications, because we have a lot of developments going up. And if we don't do that, people are going to just keep dying. And that's not, that's it, not acceptable. Is, is your goal to um, to pass a, to to make hospital capacity assessment part of um, yes you know the, the re, yeah is but is 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 that something you want to do standalone or you want to make that part of the part of rezoning uh, considerations or do you want to do a you know pass pass a bill let's say for a study of hospital you know capacity to get a, a baseline or is there you know how how are you thinking about this now that you're in the council I'm thinking about and I'm and I'm 
I'm actually going to be meeting with the committee staff this week. So, you know, to formulate a lot of this, mm -hmm. but in essence, I'm thinking to have just like you have environmental impact assessments for uh, existing, you know, for developments that are going up that you have a hospital capacity assessment. We have a lot of development, I think, in everybody's district um, across the board. And if you don't have the healthcare pieces in place, it's going to be a huge problem, even a bigger problem. We have we have an aging population. I will tell you, in my district, I have one of the highest number of seniors uh, of any city council district. And you talk about, you know, it's and what you said earlier, it is all interrelated. We need to make sure that we have preventive and primary care available to everyone that needs it and that it's equitable, as my colleague, Councilmember Narcisse said, where you have um, where you have maternal health, where you have women's health, where you have, you know, as an out lesbian LGBTQ health. Um, if, if COVID was worse than it would have been because people had underlying conditions, that's what made it a deadly for, for a lot of people. And they had underlying conditions because they don't have preventive care. They don't have primary care. In my district, I will tell you that people were telling me that they go to urgent care when they have an issue. That's not preventive and primary care. Mm -hmm. That's for an emergency. So we need to, across the board, have health care. But going back to the hospital capacity issue, the Elmhurst Hospital, um, it was, you know, it was noted that they had in the height of the pandemic, they had 13 deaths in 24 hour period. What wasn't as uh, what wasn't as known then was that Forest Hills LIJ, which is in my district, had 17 deaths in a 24 hour period. And so that's that that's totally unacceptable. So we really need to address these issues. And you know what? I think we can work together. I have a, a, a history of being able to build coalitions uh, and build coalitions. You know, I want to talk to the business community and make sure and the hospital community with my colleagues to talk to them about how we can do this. And when you say how we can do this, just just quickly, are you, are you talking about building new public hospitals or you're trying to figure out something that leverages the well, two, one, we need to increase hospital capacity. And that's not just adding a bed, by the way. Um, that's staff, that's equipment, that's a whole bunch of things that go with it. Um, and by the way, the, the healthcare system is at a breaking point because a lot of the people that work in healthcare are at the brink. You know, I have I have nurses, I'm sure that my colleagues hear the same thing, nurses, doctors, other healthcare workers saying that they're overwhelmed right now. Even with the numbers going down because people are starting to go back into the hospitals uh, for regular things. For that other didn't... things, right. right. Yes. Council Member so, Lee, the, the, the issue of um, uh, capacity has also come up under the questions related to mental health. Um, as we have seen, uh, you know, violent, tragic incidents where people seem to be suffering, you know, from very serious mental illness, those obviously uh, capture the, you know, the public's uh, attention, they're all over the news, but be, beyond even those uh, horrific events, um, there are many, many people in the city suffering from serious mental illness who who don't become violent towards others, but are not getting the treatment they need. And there's a, a consistent question around, uh, has there been has there been too much of a reduced capacity for people to get inpatient treatment? Is that something that you're looking at? 
um, you know, as we talk about sort of this question of, of hospitals and hospital capacity and kind of infrastructure of healthcare, um, is any of that on your radar right now? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I think, uh, for example, in Queens alone, uh, Jamaica, Elmhurst, and Flushing Hospital are the only ones that have inpatient units in them. Um, and a lot of our, um, you know, a lot of our community members, unfortunately, it's a revolving door. So that's part of the issue, too, is that, you know, and I don't know if this is a direct correlation. I would like to think that there's some correlation, but I, I actually spoke to some of the Korean um, clinical social workers at Elmhurst Hospital after we opened up our clinic. And they did mention to me, they're like, you know, we don't know if this is directly related, but we have noticed that at least for our Korean speaking clients, they have, we have seen a decrease in the number of people coming into the inpatient unit because you guys opened up your outpatient unit. So now we actually have somewhere to send them, right? So I think it's, it's, it's a holistic approach because I'm a huge, huge advocate for preventative services. And just to piggyback off what um, Lynn and Mercedes were saying is that, you know, there's so much research about how preventative care saves the city and state dollars in the healthcare system. Um, you know, like my friend and, you know, just a lot of times small business owners, for example, in the immigrant community um, don't prioritize their health because they're really thinking about surviving and just making ends meet. And so they don't take care of themselves. And that happened to my friend's mom who had diabetes, which people don't know, by the way, that Koreans have one of the highest rates of diabetes. Um, it's a huge chronic disease issue. Um, I know that. Yeah, exactly. So um, you know, and she she had a stroke as a result of the fact that she never took care of her diabetes type two, had to go into um, re rehabilitative care. You know, was in a was in assisted living for a while, and then it's a ton of dollars that you're spending out of pocket on the family as well as in the healthcare system, where it could have been prevented if she had just treated her her diabetes much early on. And same thing with mental health. You know, I think there's a lot we can do. And I think um, there's a lot more we can do to, to really empower a lot of the CBOs and nonprofit organizations that can provide some of this supportive service. Um, and how do we how do we sort of you know help them, assist them, make sure that the dollars are going towards those community groups that are actually providing a lot of these essential services that are ancillary to the healthcare system, but just as important to keep people out of the hospital setting. Um, and so for us, we're just trying to think through, that means we need to build up the, the base of social workers. We need to have more bilingual social workers. We need to have more uh, people through the pipeline, you know, that are coming um, in the workforce, right? Because I just, I, it's not, and, and to be honest, one of the things that I would love to work on, which is a sort of side note, is the pay parity issue. Because I oftentimes feel like, People in healthcare don't get paid the salaries that they deserve. And if we actually treated them with dignity and paid them what they deserve, I wonder how that could actually encourage, you know, different communities of color, especially or different groups that haven't thought about going into this sector um, to think about that. And so, you know, if you look at it from more of a long-term broader spectrum, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, avenues we need to take and different approaches because it has to be a multi-pronged approach. It can't just be um, one size fits all. During the um, during the de Blasio years, as as you well know, I'm sure all of you know, you know, one of the biggest sources of controversy was this Thrive NYC program. It's now been sort of recreated, rebranded as the Mayor's Office of Community Mental Health. Mayor Adams has has very quickly said he wants to you know reevaluate a lot of that and move resources towards more. Uh, acute needs, some of what I was talking about, about, you know, severe mental illness. And I think one of the things that was very clearly caught up the past, 
prior administration is, is, you know, they wanted to do a lot of what you just said, Councilmember Lee, right? And, and one of the things that I've heard and, and um, you know, has been out there some, although people got very shy about any compliments for the program because it became such a lightning rod, but, but there were some uh, service providers who were very grateful for the funding that came through to local, you know, providers. And as you said, it could have been more, it could be, uh, there could be better, you know, uh, management around uh, language access and a variety of other issues could have been better. But one of the positives you heard about it was they got a lot of, you know, money into community groups. They, they, you know, ran a lot of programs. They tried to increase awareness about seeking mental health services, reduce stigma and so forth. But the way they sort of shot themselves in the foot was that these very clear incidents of people struggling on the subways with serious mental illness or on the streets were, it seemed like a ubiquitous problem that they just weren't dealing with. And their answers were never very good about why those services weren't better. So all three of you, but Councilmember Lee, you know, you first, how are you approaching chairing this committee looking at these issues and even as you advocate for some of what you just mentioned and try to increase resources to community groups and continue to reduce stigma and make sure language language access is there for mental health services how does how are you thinking about how new york city improves the approach to the relatively small number of people who are really struggling with severe mental illness but not getting the treatment they need sure um so as you mentioned, I think one of the positive things that Thrive NYC has done is bring the issue of mental health to the forefront, which I think is really important because I think before Thrive, it just wasn't given enough attention in my opinion. And so I think that's one thing that has worked well. Um, I do think that they have done a good job of trying to coordinate a lot of the different types of services between addiction as well as mental health. Um, I think what we need to do more, though, in my opinion, is just follow the dollars and make sure, you know, because as city council members, we're stewards and we're overseers of the city budget. And I think it's not even about, I would say, more dollars, but I would even say let's reevaluate the budget currently because um, I there were a bunch of community groups that were supposed to get this funding and never saw the funding um, and uh, without getting too into the weeds of the complications of things, I know that they had a program also where they were placing social workers in um, clinics and nonprofits. So the city was training them and then placing them into these nonprofits, which sounds great. But a lot of the way that the clinics, for example, um, generate revenue is by billing. So it's like a doctor's office where you bill the insurance company um, and then you get paid for those services. But be, what I found out is that because they're technically city employees, I'm not able to bill for the services that they provide. So these are the more in like nuanced details that that I don't know if people were familiar with, but I think I think there's ways to do it though. For example, um, I used to be on the board of NAMI New York City Metro, and they're known for doing peer-to-peer -peer services. And there's research around it that's proven that this is an impactful way to keep people healthy um, and, you know, out of the mental health system before it gets too, too bad. And so how do we use even paraprofessionals or groups like NAMI to provide these services before it gets worse for a lot of these people that are suffering from mental illness? And how do we use, um, you know, uh, creative ways or, or even use the funding to uh, go create a pipeline, for example, um, 
for one of the thoughts I had, which I don't know if this is, you know, even feasible, but how do we create, uh, use the CUNY system to create, you know, certification or, or you know, an avenue for dual language speakers to enter into this field and to really incentivize them. And so I, I think it's just, how do we look at the dollars in a different way? And how do we make sure that the resources are being used wisely? Um, and how do we get the most impact? Because I, I that's the question I have is I don't, I, I don't know if it's fully, you know, documented in terms of like what the different impacts were. Um, how do we get that out? Yeah. Yeah, no, that was absolutely uh, another, you know, clear piece of the challenge was uh, measuring, you know, the impact of, of where the dollars were going under, under that program. And as I said, it sounds like there'll be some alignment between the new mayor and the new council about, you know, reevaluating where, um, in this case, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions over, you know, many years, uh, you know, are, are being allocated and whether it's the right approach. Council members, Narcisse uh, Shulman, do you want to jump in on any of that question? You know, there's discussion out there around, um, you know, Kendra's law for mandated outpatient uh, treatment is not being used enough by the city with uh, judges um, there should be more mandated inpatient treatment, you know, that there should be changes in state law to, to make it easier again to mandate inpatient treatment. Uh, any, any thoughts from, from your vantage points about um, this issue of the people with the most severe uh, mental illness and, and how to get uh, better treatment so they are not dangerous to themselves or others? I, I agree with, with Linda about that Thrive actually brought uh, mental health up to a place where at least we could have discussions about it and it wasn't in the shadows. Uh, I think that we do have to have oversight. I worked, you know, prior to my becoming council member, I worked on the speaker staff and I worked on health issues and social service issues. And the problem, I think one of the big problems with the prior administration is that there was no transparency. Even when I sat in on hearings, the, the, the mayor's side wouldn't give statistics. They, um, a lot of times they wouldn't testify to the committee. And so there was a lot of, um, th there were a lot of issues there. And I think that this administration, this new administration is gonna be very different and work with the council. Uh, already, uh, I can tell you that uh, folks from the mayor side have reached out to me. I mean, I can't speak for my colleagues, but about the issues that are important to me and working with all of the different agencies. I actually had the agency heads set that uh, for the areas that come under the purview of the health committee have reached out to me and to congratulate me and say they want to work with me. Very different very different dynamic. And so um, I think we'll be able to one, get more transparency on how the money is spent, because I think that is important because we don't want to waste money. I mean, we, we want to spend money on the things that are really important. The other thing I just want to mention very quickly about the mental health issue is that uh, I've been working with the Committee of Interns and Residents and uh, the, the residencies for psychiatry are being reduced in a lot of places, I worked. I used to work at Woodhull Hospital, which had an inpatient psychiatric. Uh, there are a lot of there's a dearth of uh, psych, of psychiatrists, which is why a lot of those beds are being closed and a lot of the units are being closed. Uh, and so uh, Congress regulates, which I didn't know. I learned I learned uh, residency programs, 
And so um, I know Grace Meng has been working with me a little bit about expanding residency programs, particularly in the area of psychiatry, uh, but to make sure that those programs go to the public health system and New York City rather than just someplace else in the country, which is what's been happening uh, regularly. So, you know, there's, as, as my colleagues have said, there are nuances to all these things. And as we learn about those different nuances, I think we're in a good place where uh, we can actually resolve those issues. For me, yeah, go ahead. For me, it's to create access where needed the most. And where where is the best place to start? It's um with the school. Um, I would like to see more of the school talking about mental health. So to take the stigma out. So young folks are understanding if you have an issue, you can talk about it. We have to start from the school. When we, we're talking about revolution, right? Where do we start? With the, start? with the young folks, because they are the one that's the future. And we're saying that all the time. So we have to take more, um, more to assess them more, to assess the young folks closer. And um, for, for me, in terms of um, mental health, if it was for NYC, I'm going to tell you, it was it took a lot of stigma off for people to have the conversation in the living room that we never had before. And in my community, per se, is taboo. If you're talking about um, somebody have mental illness, it's just like you, you, you just might as well take the key, close the door and throw it away. That's what they will tell you. Mm -hmm. So that was very important. In the time like this, it came at the right, I mean, it came at the right time, right before COVID, because God knows we're more acceptable to understand people have um, mental health issues that we, is not a, is, it's just like physical. For me, it should be a yearly assessment or even six months assessment just like physical we should be talking about it like like it's just a regular just like you have problem with physical you have problem with mental we have to do more of that and around one of the things i'm looking at not only for physical part i'm looking to to have more community health centers of course we have to work with our colleagues in government to make it possible, we need federal funding qualified centers where we can address physical and mental. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking for ways, I'm looking for with um, a medical team to see how the question are framed in the assessment to make sure that we address mental health as it is, is a problem just like the physical. So people don't have to feel ashamed talking about mental health. Um, another thing is just like, if you become a threat to yourself, we're talking about, um, um, Kendra's law, if you are a threat to yourself and to society, of course, decision have to be made to protect you and the, the society. So I'm, I'm, I support that because I think it's, uh, it's preventing the person because when you go into that crisis, a lot of time, you don't know, it's just like, uh, it's just like going in a glance and you hurt somebody. And then you end up in jail. And a lot of people with mental health end up in jail for no reason. For I was about reason. to say, you know, the places, and you probably saw this in your experience, you know, the places that people are winding up are sometimes in the hospitals, but very often in shelters and very often in jail. And yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that's not working, you know, for anybody for it to be, for the, for the city's jail system, for Rikers Island to have the biggest, you know, mental health uh, system, you know, public mental health system in the city is is not working for for the city as a whole or the people who are there. It could have been caused oh, by treating someone. Go ahead. Uh, what, I, what I wanted to mention, you know, all of this came about too because in the 1970s, 
when they closed the mental mental institutions that they had mm-hmm. because of all kinds of issues and investigations and everything else, they put people into the communities, but without support, without support, without assistance, without staff, without all of that. And so that actually helped to give rise to a lot of what we're seeing now. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it strikes me, and I, I do want to move on to a couple other things since we don't have that much more time left. But if anybody you know wants to jump in and comment on this, you know, it strikes me that there's obviously a lot of people calling for more and more supportive housing, you know, affordable housing with services built in that can, that can address certainly some of these issues, not to mention the city's uh, deep affordable housing crisis. But, um, but a lot of times still, even if you have more supportive housing, even if you have more supportive service, you wind up with situations where there are people who um, are, are a danger to themselves or others, but, um, are not willingly seeking treatment, right? Have have stopped taking medication. It's very hard to, you know, convince them to start again, or there's not an appropriate place that people that know them feel like they can bring them as some of you were getting at. And there seems to just be, um, you know, a lot of sort of cracks in that, that essential network of helping people who are among the most vulnerable people um, in the city. Let me let me ask you each uh, a few kind of quick uh, round robin questions here. Is there an issue each of you wants to hold an oversight hearing on among your first, maybe second? You're you're all going to have to co-chair some budget hearings coming up on the mayor's preliminary budget, so that'll throw you uh, into the deep end very quickly on on the budget. But in terms of your committee area and oversight hearings separate from the budget, is there a topic? Uh, that you want to hold an oversight hearing early on, uh, Councilmember Narcisse, why don't you go ahead? Um, I want to I want to hold hearing on effectiveness of community health um, centers because I believe those those are the places where we can make a differences. We can increase the amount of community health centers, especially in the high risk areas. Sorry, with my little cat pushing on me. That's okay. <laughs> hearing um, where we can highlight the needs and the potential effectiveness effectiveness of them, right? We want to build it a great catalyst to begin the investment process. So we let know an that, oversight hearing that you want to want to hold soon. Sure. Um, that too. Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, it really was sort of going back to uh, the Thrive NYC and also just the the monies, um, you know, because I think I think if we're going to create new policies, we need to first take a look back uh, especially during COVID, see what worked, what didn't, um, and make sure that that money is, is being directed in the, in the way that it needs to go, especially during a time where mental health is such a crisis. Mm. So that'll probably coincide with, with the budget hearing, perhaps. Uh, Councilmember Shulman, something you want to hold an oversight hearing on? Yes, absolutely. I, I want to do it on, on COVID. Uh, and, you know, there weren't in the, in the, previous council, there weren't a lot of hearings about COVID, we want to see what the stats are, where we are, where's the Department of Health, you know, the uh, health commissioner is going to be leaving in March uh, to see where all the numbers are, what's happening, what's happening with test and trace. Uh, you know, I know it's not part of DOHMH, but, you know, in the, it, it historically it has been, but it was kind of taken out and what's happened with that. So, yeah, I want to, uh, that I think is something important so that we can move forward. Any sense yet? I know you said uh, the day after we're, we're talking here and we are talking on January 31st, so folks know, but um, 
Uh, I know you said you're talking uh, tomorrow with uh, the committee staff, but do you have a sense of when you might hold a first oversight hearing on COVID? They, because that that's obviously a very, you know, it's that'll be, yeah, that'll be, that'll, I have to work with the staff and see what the availabilities are, you know, right now with COVID, um, the hearings are remote, uh, which uh, actually allows more people to participate, but there's also some limited resources so but i want to get started as soon as i can and i've made that clear already in the preliminary conversations i had with them and we'll we'll come up with that tomorrow but i i would like to do that uh this coming month and speaking of COVID, that's exactly where i wanted to to go next um for each of you is there a covid related policy that you want to see rethought that you want to see uh, done away with, that you want to see enhanced particularly? Is there something that you're looking to uh, in in this position that you're in, or, or even just as a city council member, not necessarily for your committee, but is there something about the city's public health, COVID policies, uh, vaccine mandates? Uh, maybe it's advocating for there to be a, a vaccine mandate added to the, the school uh, suite of, of vaccines for next fall or anything uh, related to, to COVID and COVID policies that you want to see either put in place, removed, uh, anything on, the, on that general topic that you're looking at closely. Anybody jump in? Oh, I'll, I'll, go ahead. Go ahead, Mercedes. Go ahead, you, you miss help. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the hospital. I like to be. <laughs> now, um, the, you know what? It, you, as you said, uh, it's January 31st, and I think COVID's a moving target. Uh, we're talking about there's a, there's a new variant that's being talked about a little bit in some scientific circles. Uh, I think we need to see kind of where we are. The one thing I will tell you is that uh, borough president, my borough president, Donovan Richards. Uh, made a proposal to the to the mayoral administration of having an office of COVID recovery that would pull in uh, that would pull in processes from all the different agencies and be a one stop shop to make sure that COVID recovery is done in an effective, efficient, and consistent manner. Uh, and that's something that I'm interested in looking at as well. What I'm actually looking at is um, telemedicine how we can make it work because with the COVID pandemic, because during the height of the pandemic, I was helping with my own little capacity and my partner is a doctor. We left the office open and I realized a lot of folks was not attached to primary care in that high risk area. So therefore they could not benefit from the telemedicine. So they could not get the attention and they end up in the ER and overload the ER. So we have to take a focus and, and prepare. I'm not hoping for any other pandemic, but we have to prepare for that. So people don't have to rush to the hospital because when you go in the hospital, they're not prepared. They don't have PPE. So they end up infect, you're infecting the staff, the staff is being infectious and go back and forth. And in the meanwhile, if you have telemedicine effectively functioning for everyone with um, there, I'm gonna talk to you about a lot of other things, but a uh, board band, because we did not have that. We realized people cannot access that. So my goal is to increase access with telemedicine, to use CBOs 
um, community-based organization, not only to help the, because I would like to start a pilot program where you can have seniors, like people, the CBOs coming and make the schedule access from the hospital or the regular doctors or even the centers that they belong to and make the appointment for the seniors because a lot of them cannot access the tab. So now if this, the uh, community-based organization do that and then come back around when it's the time for the actual visit so they can bring the tab and you the seniors just have to press one button while they still have the privacy the person can walk outside and let the seniors speak to the doctors mm -hmm. so therefore we keep people at home we keep people in the place where they are comfortable and we can treat them unless they have to come to the hospital then they go to the hospital so these are one of the things that i really am looking forward i'm dying to work on it and work with um the technology part of the city council to see how we can make it um available to everyone but i would like us sounds like another pilot good, program with seniors sounds like another good oversight hearing for sure uh <laughs> council member lee anything sure. any COVID, covid related policies you you want reevaluated or, or put in place or removed sure um I don't know if this is necessarily translated into a policy, but I know that especially uh, Narcisse was talking about the schools. I know that each of the schools did receive funding to add social workers that didn't have social workers already, which I think is great, but it's just a starting point because um, some of these schools have over a thousand children. And so if, if that's the case, then I don't think one social worker is enough. I think we need to make sure that also the funding stays there and that we're able to keep the social workers in the schools. And I'm curious to see what the long-term impacts are going to be, especially with uh, some of the students that are coming back or the time that they were at home that they, you know, delayed their learning um, in schools and to see what kind of impact that's going to have on them as well as their, their families. And then on the opposite spectrum, because similar to Lynn, um, I have a very high percentage of older adults in my district, and we also are a transit desert. So we don't have any railways in my district. We're one of the few city council districts that has no subway, no Long Island Railroad, so we rely heavily on buses and cars. And um, I know that this is more of a state issue, but I wonder what the city can do around mobile services. So it, piggybacking off what Narcisse is saying, you know, she's talking about the telehealth, which I think is super important too, but also if they need physical services, um, I know that folks in my district have a lot of issues with transportation and older adults. And so how do we make sure that they're receiving services that they can, so that they can stay healthy in their homes for as long as possible, because that does alleviate some of the burden on the healthcare system in terms of costs as well. Mm -hmm. All right, last question. Um, do, do each of you or any of you have a, a bill in mind that you, you know, are looking to either introduce or you've already put in for or something from the prior council that you want to pick up um, that wasn't passed, but you think should be or at least deserves, you know, another look or a hearing? Um, any any piece of legislation that you're looking to uh, either advance or, or revisit, uh, Councilmember Shulman? Any any legislation sort of top of your docket? Yes, to make hospital capacity part of the assessment process for <laughs> broken record uh, yeah, for no. new for, for for and there's only an application process. Mm -hmm. Okay, Councilmember Narcisse. Um, I'm looking for maternal hearing on maternal health. It's, it's a is a it was visited before this hearing have been done in the past, mm -hmm. but we need to be um, having specific hearing on why black women are eight times we're talking about eight times more likely to die of pregnancy related causes than white work. I mean, New Yorkers, mm -hmm. yeah, it I is unacceptable. So I want to visit that more. Mm -hmm. I have to look back to see if there was any 
legislation related to that topic that didn't move in the last council or what came out of, of some examination there, but that, that sounds like obviously another important hearing. Uh, Councilmember Lee, uh, any legislation at the top of your docket? There's a few. This one is a little, I, I wouldn't know, if, say this is top of my docket, but one of the mm -hmm. things I think is important that maybe hasn't been brought up is the data disaggregation piece of things, because when you're looking at, at uh, issues, especially whether it's health related or education related, whatever the topic is, um, you know, given that we are so diverse as a city, I do think that the way that the data is being collected and, and put out in reports um, is something that we need to look at a bit further on because I've been in meetings before where DOHMH will say the population breakdown is black, white, Latino, other. And I'm like, okay, I wonder how the chronic disease breakouts would actually look differently if we actually broke the data out more. And so if you're talking about how to prevent health and how to address health issues, I think we need to have accurate data that reflects what's actually going on in the community. And, and so how do we as a city look differently at how we're collecting that information when people walk into the hospitals or when they you know, go into the ER or you know, see their doctors and how can we collect it more accurately? Mm. Interesting. All right, we could uh, we could continue on, but we're we're going to wrap it there because uh, this has been a, a very interesting, thoughtful conversation. And I appreciate all of you joining me, and I need to let you go because uh, I'm sure you all have other things to do. If uh, I had been... to, <laughs> go if ahead. I had to add one more thing. Don't Please, you have to know how to retain nurses because that's the crisis that we're going through, and it has to be highlighted because we need the staff. We cannot ask staffing ratio and we don't have the nurses there. So we have to take them from high school, train them, whatever it takes as a city, we have to address that issue because we cannot deliver quality of care if we don't have the staff to do it. All right, thank you. Good note to, to end on. Uh, you've been listening to City Council Member Linda Lee of Queens, City Council Member Mercedes Narcisse of Brooklyn and City Council Member Lynn Shulman also of Queens. Here on Max Politics, this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Thank you, all three of you, for joining me. I'm looking forward to all of these oversight hearings that you mentioned, uh, because I think those can often be some of the very most important things that the city council does. And thank you very much for uh, for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you so much.